Let's pray. Father, I speak your blessing over this house today. I pray, Father, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. I speak blessing over this house today. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Last night I preached at Ark at the Ark in Berkeley as every Saturday night and uh, after the service was over my wife and I went and connected with a couple at uh, a location on Durant called the uh, very commonly called the Asian Ghetto. Anybody here know where the Asian Ghetto is? Give me a shout out. Now the Asian Ghetto is just a block and a half just around the corner from the UC Berkeley campus and it's it's really a section where there's a bunch of Asian restaurants but there's also a Mexican restaurant in there and a donut shop and a Italian restaurant and and there's a little courtyard in the middle where you know you go and you get your stuff and then you go sit in the middle courtyard and you eat and you talk and they call it the Asian ghetto because a lot of Asians hang out there and so the arc the arc being predominantly Asian people love going to the Asian ghetto after service on Saturday night so my wife and I go there very frequently on Saturday nights we sit and we talk with the people but last night something strange happened we're sitting there talking to a couple and all of a sudden off to my right I hear a guy go what did you say? And I keep talking because I had no idea he was talking to me. What'd you call me? I keep talking. I didn't, you know. And then all of a sudden, he throws down his plate and jumps up and starts walking right towards me. What'd you call me? What'd you say to me? And I turn and I look to my right, and there's a man covered with tattoos, and not just tattoos, but satanic symbols, pentagram, all kinds of satanic symbols tattooed all over him, even on his forehead. And he walks up to me and says, I heard what you said to me. I heard what you called me. I heard what you said. I said, sir, I haven't said anything to you. And I'm thinking, this guy looks like he's about to hit me hard, fast, and often. He's about to beat me like I stole something. In my heart, I'm pleading the blood of Jesus. You know, when stuff happens, it happens quick. You don't have time to theologize it or think through it. or inter You don't get a, a spiritual interpretation on the spot. I'm just thinking, I'm about to get punched in the face. And he gets in front of me and goes, I'm going to punch you right in your face. Punch you in your face. I'm going to punch you in your face right now. I hate you. Kill you. I'm going to kill you. And I'm thinking, the devil hates me. You know, that's a good thing. All of a sudden, some confidence started to rise up in me, and I said, wait a minute. This is a good thing. The devil knows who's in charge. At the same time, I can't, I can't lie and say I wasn't scared. <laughs> At the same time, I'm thinking, oh, Lord. And then all of a sudden, he goes, I'm being a jerk. You got two quarters I can borrow. <laughs> You're going to eat the rest of that food. After it was over, my wife said, I'm so shaken. I'm scared. Not scared, but a little shaken. And I was shaken for a minute. But then I said, wait a minute. There was nothing going on there but the power of intimidation. It was absolutely positively demonic. He came right to me. Didn't mess with anybody else in the courtyard, 
but he came right to me and said, I hate you, I'm going to kill you. That was not the voice of a man speaking through him. That was the voice of the devil. But I said to my wife, I said, when the devil tries to intimidate you, that's a clear sign that you're already reigning with Christ. He doesn't waste his time trying to intimidate people who don't have any authority. When the devil tries to intimidate you, it is a clear sign that you are already reigning with Christ. And what the devil wants to do in this season is shake you of your confidence and shake you of your boldness so that you shrink to a place of fear and you shrink to a place that is beneath the place of reign that you have been given with Christ. Your job is to reign with Christ in the earth. Now, when I talk about believers reigning in Christ, I'm not talking about reigning over people. When we think of authority, the first, time, the first thing we think of is authority to command people or to tell people what to do or to control people. And that's not the kind of reign that Christ has invited us into. Matter of fact, Jesus said to his disciples, the Gentiles lord it over those under their authority, but not so with you. The greatest among you will be your servant. So leadership over people is about servanthood. But reigning with Christ is about reigning over the demonic. It is about being an enforcer of the lordship of Jesus Christ in the earth. Now, if you were to get on the highway and start driving 127 miles an hour, you would not get pulled over by the law. You would get pulled over by a police officer who has been deputized to enforce the law. That is, without an enforcer of the law, the law has no power. The power of the law is in those who enforce it. Now, in Matthew chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 10, the Bible tells us that Jesus called his disciples to him and gave them authority to cast out demons, to heal sicknesses and disease, and to preach the kingdom. And then he sent them out in his name to enforce his lordship wherever they went. He basically deputized them and sent them out as police officers of the kingdom and said, wherever you go, you're going to see things that are in violation and in opposition against my lordship. You're going to bring them under arrest. And you're going to enforce my lordship in the earth. You know, last night as I was praying, the Lord spoke to me and he said, Benjamin, I was already lord before you declared me so. <sighs> you know, you and I don't make Jesus lord. Whether you believe it or not, he's Lord. Whether you allow the devil to trample you or not, he's Lord. You can, get, you can let the devil beat you up and say, look, and it's funny, whenever something happens to us, we're looking at the Lord like, what happened there? <laughs> you know, what, 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 where'd you go? <laughs> what happened to you? It doesn't matter what happens to us. The Lordship of Jesus is intact. But in this season, he is inviting us to reign with him. To reign with him. And in order to reign with him, we must make a decision that we will absolutely not allow our confidence to be shaken. Now, there's a situation here in Acts chapter 4. And uh, you know what happened in Acts chapter 3? Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. And there's a man at the gate beautiful who was lame from his mother's womb. And he looks at them asking for alms. And Peter says, look at us. And then he says, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I have I give you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And the man jumps to his feet. He's completely healed. And he walks and he jumps and he shouts and he runs into the temple courts. And he's praising the Lord and he's, he's, he's worshiping. And it, it incites almost a riot. Everybody sees, wait a minute, this man was lame. I know he's lame. I've 
seen him sit outside the temple begging for years, and now suddenly he's running and jumping, and everybody gathers around Peter and John, and they're looking at them with amazement. And Peter looks at the crowd, and he says, Don't look at us as if by our own power or godliness this man is made well. God has glorified his son, Jesus Christ. Literally what Peter is saying, all we've done is enforce the lordship of Jesus that was already valid before we enforced it. All we did was manifest the power of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but he was Lord before we showed up at the temple to pray this morning. This is just an expression of his Lordship. But the the fact of the matter is, and Paul will tell us later, that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All we're seeing is a prelude of that day. And as we get closer to that day, we're going to see more and more preludes of that day, more and more manifestations of the fact that every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, what, what happens is uh, Peter and John, they, they preach, and 3,000 people are added to the church that day. But the Pharisees and Sadducees and the rulers of the temple, they don't like it, so they arrest them, they put them in bonds, they have them beaten, and then they bring them before the Sanhedrin here in Acts chapter 4, and they forbid them to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. We forbid you on threat of death. Now, you want to talk about some kind of intimidation that you and I have gone through? You and I are intimidated because somebody doesn't like us. I'm feeling intimidation because a man covered in demonic tattoos is standing in front of me saying, I'm going to punch you. They actually got beaten and thrown in prison. And after having been beaten and thrown in prison, they're brought before the Sanhedrin court and forbidden to preach in that name on threat of death. On threat, If you preach in the name of Jesus ever again, we're going to kill you. Look at this, Acts 4, verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they set them in their midst, they asked them, By what power, by what what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's, it's easy to get filled with the Holy Spirit at church in the middle of worship. With Chinway leading worship on the platform, and the anointing is all over the house. And we're singing, you're an awesome God. It's easy to get filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment. But when you're standing before the Sanhedrin, before a bunch of people that, know, that you know want to kill you, can you get filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment? One of the saddest indictments against contemporary Christianity is that most Christians only get the anointing at church. I'm only anointed. I come to church and I feel the Holy Ghost, but I don't feel the Holy Ghost out in the world. Why? Because I'm not before a captive audience. And I'm not in the context of people who accept me. And somehow I surrender my confidence. I surrender my boldness. I surrender the unction of the Holy Spirit. And I, be, I even begin to blame the Lord. Lord, why don't you anoint me outside of the church? And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Why do you have no confidence when you leave the house? It's as if you believe that I'm only with you in the four walls of the church with music playing. And what we try to do is recreate that environment by turning on some worship music at home. I need to recreate the church service because the Holy Spirit only comes to music. That's what the Bible says. No, it doesn't say that. (laughs) Peter and John are standing before a council of individuals who have more education than them. 
who have more experience than them in the natural, have more wisdom than them, have more clout with the people than them, have more authority than them, and they are not intimidated at all because they know Jesus Christ. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter says, I'm faced with a bunch of Jesus haters, and that's when I get anointed. You know, the Lord spoke to me this week, and he said, Benjamin, why don't you preach outside the church? You love preaching in places where people accept you, don't you? See, when I stand up at Living Hope, I know I'm standing before a crowd of people that want to hear what I have to say. Because if you don't want to hear it, you wouldn't have come. Except some of you teenagers. (laughs) But I'm not tripping off y'all. Y'all going to hear it. And you're going to like it. And when you grow up, you're going to want to come. But preaching in the street, I might get some tomatoes thrown at me. God wants to take us to a place of boldness. See, what shuts down the flow of the anointing of the Holy Spirit is fear. And if we could just push all of that fear out of the way, we would open our hearts wide enough for the anointing of the Holy Spirit to come on us in the marketplace. If the Holy Spirit can come on me in the church, it can come, he can come on me in the marketplace. And what we see is that the way the church grew in the book of Acts was not giving out a flyer and inviting people to come to the church. It was not making an announcement that miracles are happening at this church. The miracles were happening in the marketplace, on the road, on the way. And that's where Jesus did his miracles. He did most of them in the marketplace, on the way, on the road, in the street. He wanted to make it plain. He never intended to establish his lordship within four walls of a building because he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, Now, it's interesting that he addresses them, even though he's not intimidated by them, he still addresses them with respect. You know, oftentimes, zealous believers, out of of the intention of overcoming intimidation, we disrespect people in the name of Jesus. And we think it's the anointing. The anointing will never come on you to be disrespectful or to be offensive, purposefully offensive. We say, well, people are going to be offended if we, if, if, you know, if I'm serving the Lord, if you're offended, you can just deal with it. Do you realize that every time I offend people purposefully in the name of the Lord, Jesus gets blamed for it? Jesus gets blamed for a lot of foolishness. <laughs> I took some people to a, a, a ministry somewhere one time and one of my people spoke up and said something. One of the people that I brought, brought, unbeknownst to me, spoke up and said something offensive to the leader of the whole event. And I was wondering why he was mad at me. I had no idea what had happened. And when I found out that my leader had done that, I took him aside. I said, I did not give you permission to speak in my name. So I didn't say it in your name. I said, no, everything you say is in my name. 
Because you came with me. They see you as an extension of me. You offended him on my behalf without my permission. If you don't have something nice to say, keep your mouth shut. A lot of believers need to learn to zip it. But most of the time, that offensiveness flows out of fear. It flows out of the fact that I'm afraid and I'm trying to overcome my fear. And when I'm afraid and I try to overcome my fear by pushing myself out into a place of of pretended boldness, I'm going to say and do the wrong thing. But if in the spirit I overcome my fear, then the anointing can flow on me and I can stand up with boldness and say the right thing and the Lord will give me the wisdom to say it in a way that reaches people rather than turns them away. You know, I see all of the, the comments about Steve Jobs going up on, on Facebook, and there's so many negative comments about Steve Jobs, people berating him. And, and, and there was one particular comment that, that somebody wrote on somebody's page, and it said, you know, Steve Jobs, he wasn't even a believer. He ain't got no legacy. What kind of legacy is that? No, Jesus, that's the legacy. I don't want his legacy, and went on and on and on. And I wanted to ask that person, What do you think the non-Christian friends of this person whose wall you're writing on think when they read your statement? Do you think that statement brings them closer to Jesus or pushes them further away from him? Oh, that's boldness. That's, That's all the boldness we believers tend to have. Boldness to criticize. Boldness to point the finger and say, you're wrong. We're not standing for anything, but we sure know how to stand against stuff. I'm bold to say I'm against this and against that and against this and against that and against this. And, but listen, we're not standing for Jesus because we're not demonstrating his works in the marketplace. Peter and John are not standing on a political platform here reasoning with the Sanhedrin about what they're against. He's filled with the Holy Spirit to explain the miracle that he just worked in the name of Jesus. When was the last time you were put on trial for working a miracle in the marketplace in the name of Jesus? Hmm. Now watch this. He starts by honoring them. Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. I recognize your place. Paul did the same thing later on in Acts, uh, what was it, Acts 27 when he stood before King Agrippa. He called him most excellent Agrippa, you know. And he, he, I mean, he just, and then he turned it and blasted him. <laughs> Look at this, verse 9. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man. <laughs> Check it out. He's pointing out the ridiculousity of this attack. Do you know that every, there's nothing, that, there's no attack from the devil that's not inherently ridiculous. <laughs> so since... We are on trial today for helping a helpless man, for doing a good deed to a helpless man. And we're on trial for it. If you want to try us, you see Peter's boldness? He's standing before his professors. Now, I remember taking my comprehensive exams, and I had to stand before three professors. I didn't have this kind of boldness. I was trembling in my boots. Why? Because they forgot more than I'll ever know. Peter was standing before people who knew the Bible ten times better than him. You ever had to reason with someone who knew the Bible better than you? But was twisting it 
And what do we tend to do? Get scared. And we think, ooh, I better go find a bigger gun. Who can I call? You need to talk to my pastor. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He's using scripture against them. He's boldly proclaiming a message that he knows they won't receive. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. There's that word boldness. The word in the Greek is paresia. Say paresia. Paresia. The word boldness is paresia. Paresia is the ability to run and not hesitate. Paresia is not slow contemplative action. It is running. It is forthrightness. It is frankness. It's the ability to stand up and say everything that needs to be said and sit down knowing that is done. It is the confidence of knowing that you've done and said exactly what needs to be done and said in this situation, nothing more and nothing less. You ever walk away from something saying, man, I wish I would have said this. Man, I, I should have said this. I should have done this. I, 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 or I'm not sure what I should have done. What should I have done? You ever walked away from a situation feeling that? You ever stood in the midst of a situation and said, what do I do? What do I say? Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin and they know exactly what to say. And they know exactly what to do. He is speaking out of a sense, out of a confidence that says, I know exactly what to say and do in this situation. And there's no doubt in my mind that what I'm saying to you is right. When they saw the boldness, the frankness, it's not an emotion. We think boldness is an emotion. Well, let me tell you something, Sanhedrin. That's not what they were doing. It's not something that you put on. It's not a psychological state of mind. Boldness is not a psychological term in the New Testament. It is a, it is a theological term. They saw the frankness, the boldness, the confidence of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, meaning there was no reason for it in the natural. The word in the Greek is actually idiotes. That's where we get the term idiots from. Perceiving that they were idiotes. Are there any idiotes in the house? <laughs> Uneducated and untrained. They don't have the schooling to be speak. Now, some folks speak boldly in an uneducated way, and it's just ignorance. <laughs> I love it when some folks who have never studied Greek a day in their life try to tr break the Greek open. Well, actually, if you look at the Greek text there, it's like you couldn't read it if you looked at the Greek text. What are you telling me to look at the Greek text? <laughs> you never looked at the Greek text, and if you did, it was all Greek to you. 
and they come up with new interpretations. Well, actually, what that word really means in the Greek is. But Peter and John not only had boldness, but it was an appropriate boldness. Not an ignorant boldness, not an offensive boldness, but an appropriate boldness. An unapologetic yet unoffensive Allowing them to contend for the faith, but not contentiously. Did you get that? We're called to contend for the faith, but not contentiously. We're supposed to stay away from arguments. The man of God must not quarrel. They weren't quarreling with the Sanhedrin. They were simply declaring, you know, there's nothing more powerful than you having the boldness simply to declare what you believe unapologetically without having to fight about it. But saying, this is what I believe. And one of the greatest indictments against Christians, one of the, one of the reasons why unbelievers have trouble connecting with us is because we're so apologetic about what we believe and we're so afraid to say it. You know, I know there's some stuff that I believe that's going to offend people out there. And it's not that I don't care about people, but I don't have a chance of winning anybody to the truth if I don't stand for what I believe in. The greatest offense is that salvation is only in the name of Jesus. Peter knew that this was a great offense to the people he was talking to. Because what it told them was that all of their legalistic righteousness and their striving to obey the law amounted to zilch. These guys had memorized the entire Old Testament from start to finish and Peter's saying it means nothing. These guys had striven to obey the law their entire lives. And Peter says it amounts to zilch. Nada. Boldness. Later on in Acts chapter 4, after the Sanhedrin has them beaten and sends them home, it says they went back to their companions and reported all, of the chief, all that the chief priests had said. And first thing they did was they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. They were beaten and they rejoiced for it. They said, this is because of Christ. What a great benefit. And then they had a prayer meeting. And what was the prayer meeting? Now, I, I know if it were me, now if I had gone out and preached and got imprisoned and beaten, I'd come in crying the next Sunday. And we'd have a prayer meeting, all right. Oh, Lord, heal our pastor. Help him, Lord. <laughs> strengthen him lord and i'd say church i'm taking a vacation for a while i need to go to maui and heal of my wounds <laughs> me and my wife need to get out of town and lick our wounds for a while so church pray our strength in the lord <laughs> we'll be back but in the meantime we got to calm down because there's some stuff out there that's against us <laughs> and we don't want to make any more trouble no more of a stir they got together to pray and what did they pray they said, O Lord, you are God, the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David hath said, Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, against your holy servant Jesus. And then he said, Now, Lord, behold their threats and grant to your servants boldness that they may proclaim your name. By stretching forth your hand to heal, which is what got them in trouble in the first place. The last time somebody got healed, they got beat. 
And now they immediately go and have a prayer meeting and say, Lord, heal some more people. <laughs> you and I pray for somebody that get healed, we get a big offering. You go to church and call somebody out and they get healed, your offering just doubled. I tell the pastor, take the offering at the end of the service. You never know what God's going to do. <laughs> I was in Korea. The lame man walked in the service at the end of the service, and they put it up all over YouTube and all over, the, all over Facebook. Everybody was talking about it on Facebook. I got famous in that co community because of that healing. Peter heals somebody, and he gets beaten. And he's home praying for more miracles. <laughs> He didn't care that there was more beatings. He knew that he would suffer and die for the name of Jesus, and he wanted it anyway. That's what boldness is. Boldness is the recognition that I serve the Lord Christ, not people. And that God did not put me in my place to please people or even to develop a following. We get so focused on getting people to come that we forget that it's about getting the Lord to come, not people. And if the Lord comes, people will come. And being faithful to what God has called us to do. All right. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were idiots, they marveled. They were amazed. The Lord spoke to me a couple of days ago. He said, Benjamin, nobody wants to walk with you. But people do want to run with you. So you better start running, homie. People marvel at boldness. When the Lord takes someone fearful. Now you remember, these disciples were fearful just a few days ago. Before Jesus was crucified, they were running like little punks. Who was there when he was being crucified? They were all in hiding. They were afraid they were next. But the Holy Spirit came on them in Acts chapter 2. And when the Holy Spirit came on them, he took away all of their fears and gave them boldness. But now in Acts 4, they're praying for boldness again. See, the fact of the matter is, when the Holy Spirit gives you boldness, you have to fight not only to possess it, but to maintain it. The devil will do everything to take away your boldness. He wants to shake you of your confidence. He wants to intimidate you. And he's going to send all kind of thoughts your way, telling you you're not really hearing from God. You're not really walking after the things of God. You're not really doing what God wants you to do. You're not really serving the Lord. You're not really standing in his way. You're not being faithful to what he's given you to do. You don't even hear from the Lord. He wants to shake your confidence. He wants to intimidate you because if he can intimidate you, he can distract you. If he can distract you, he can stop you from moving forward. You ever tried to break a door down? You run at that door, but if you hesitate at the last minute? That's what a lot of believers are like. The Lord says, run right through that door. You're going to knock it down. And you start running in at the last second. But what if it doesn't work? Poof. Practically break your shoulder. You ever tried breaking a board? Taekwondo, punching through a board? <laughs> I remember the first time I tried it. I'm about to punch that board. And just a split second before I hit it, I went, oh, no, it's going to hurt. And guess what? <laughs> According to your faith, be it under you.
The anointing is coming to empower us to plow some things. But we've got to run. Now listen to this. Uh, they saw the boldness and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Boldness comes from being with Jesus. You can read a hundred different books and not be any bolder than you were before. You can go to seminary and Bible college and get 15 degrees and 27 letters after your name. The anointing does not come from education. Is it useful? Yeah, it's useful. That's why I'm doing it. It's useful, but it, it is to be brought into the service of the anointing of the Spirit, not replace it. They realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. It says later on that Stephen stood up to the Sanhedrin and preached, and it says they could not resist the spirit of wisdom with which he spoke. You know, we've been through a season, and, and we're living in a day and age in which modernity has learned how to refute everything. Question everything. Sir Francis Bacon said that in order to, to arrive at certainty, you must begin with doubt. But what he didn't realize is that if you begin with doubt, you actually never arrive at certainty. And you read the thinkers of the Enlightenment, they don't ever arrive at certainty. They're not certain about anything. But the book of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is being certain of what we do not see. God wants to take us past the place of timidity. And God wants to take us to a place where such great miracles are worked through the hands of the saints that nothing can be said against it. Nothing can be said. You ever seen a healing and then the doctors say, oh, we misdiagnosed you. There was a healing where there was a man who um, I went to the hospital to pray for a few years ago. He was an older, elderly guy who had fallen and broken his hip. And I saw the, the x-ray. He had a fracture going all the way down his hip. I laid my hands on him and prayed, and the Lord healed him. And he got up out of the bed right then and started dancing. And they took another picture, another x-ray of his hip. Now, yesterday they took the picture, and there's a fracture, and this man's 70 years old. The next day they took another picture, and there's no fracture there in that hip. I mean, there was, they had pictures to prove it. And the doctor said, well, we must have misdiagnosed you. There's a person sitting in this room right now who had cancer for like 30 years since she was a teenager. And got healed right here in this service when Joseph Olberg was had, having a, a healing service. Called it out by word of knowledge. And she went in for her checkup that week, and they kept her on the table for seven hours. She said, is there a problem? They said, we're trying to figure something out. You know what the problem was? They couldn't find the cancer anymore. And she came the next Sunday with a piece of paper from the doctors, giving her a full bill of health. <laughs> Misdiagnosed. Thursday morning, my mother calls me. She says, Benjamin, you've got to pray for Anna. Anna is, and her husband, Wayne, have been friends of my parents since before I was born. We grew up around them, and, 
and uh, they have a daughter who's a, a freshman in college. She had gone in for just a routine procedure and went home with internal bleeding. And by Thursday morning, or Friday morning, yeah, by Friday morning, the doctors had done everything they could do. She had already had 14 blood transfusions. None of her own blood was left in her body. After six, after six units of blood, you've cycled out all of your blood. She had had 14. So she had gone through two and a half bodies full of blood. And the doctor said, we can't stop the bleeding. We can't slow it down. There's nothing else we can do for her. If this does not change, she's going to die. It was a desperate situation. I called my spiritual father and I told him, I said, you know, we're praying for Anna. He says, oh, that's already handled. I said, what? He said, I talked to your father. And I told him he has absolute authority over this. And I told him to go into the room and declare that she will live and not die. And I'll enforce it in the spirit. So don't worry about it. It's already handled. <laughs> he, told me about, he told me that at about noon. It's, it's done. Don't worry. I've already taken care of that. It's, that's handled. Let's talk about something else. And he changed the subject. He's not even praying anymore. And I'm thinking, I just talked to my mom and my mom said, oh, Lord, it looks bad. And don't get me wrong. They were believing too, but it didn't look good. And a couple hours later, my mom calls me. The bleeding is stopping. It's slowed down. And a couple hours later, the bleeding is almost completely stopped. And by that evening, the bleeding is completely stopped. She's completely well. He's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, I told you it's done. I told you I'd handle it. You ever come to that place of boldness in the spirit? Or you just know it's done. No question. It's done. I've already handled it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> That's gangster. Look at this. Verse 18. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And there's the key to boldness. Seeing and hearing. John said it in 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have seen. Which we have heard and which our hands have handled. That life that was manifested which was from the beginning and was manifested to us. We declare to you. I'm telling you what I've seen, and I'm telling you what I've heard. Boldness does not come from making a decision not to fear anymore. Boldness comes from going into your prayer closet and praying until you can see and hear Jesus. And one of the greatest attacks of the enemy against believers in Jesus Christ is the lie that Jesus will not show up if you seek him. I tell you, he will come. 
I tell you, if you begin to reach for him, if you begin to seek his presence, he will come. He will manifest himself to you. And I know you've had many disappointments. You feel like you've sought him before and he hasn't come. But we're in a season in which God is removing all of that disillusionment, removing all of that discouragement and fear, and restoring our boldness and confidence in the fact that if I seek him, he will answer me and show me great and mighty things which I did not know. If I call upon him, he'll answer me. If I seek his face, he'll show me his face. If I look for him, he'll make himself known to me. Boldness comes from being in the Holy of Holies. They said, you tell us, is it better to obey you or God? For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. It's interesting. The last thought I had when I walked out of that area last night, and that man hovered around there for the whole time we were there. The devil will hover around you, hoping to intimidate you. And I left and I said, you know, there have been men of God who who have been beaten and killed by people. But it's interesting that this man could not touch me. You know what it tells me? That we're in a season in which the devil only has one weapon against us, and that's intimidation. He actually can't touch us. I've walked there going, can't touch this. Mm-mm. <laughs> The devil actually can't touch you. Everything that you think is a threat is nothing more than that, a threat. The Sanhedrin was telling them, we're going to kill you if you preach in that name anymore. They were threatening them and threatening them and threatening them, but underneath all of the threats, here was the truth, finding no way of punishing them because of the people. They looked at them and said, there's nothing we can do against them. All we can do is threaten them, so we're going to use the only weapon we have, threats. Some of you, the devil's been threatening you. I'm going to destroy your body. Threatening you, I'm going to carry you away. Threatening you, I'm going to destroy your family. I'm going to attack your children. I'm going to destroy your finances. I'm going to ruin your life. And it's all threats. And all the devil can do is threaten you. But here is the key to your understanding. When the devil begins to intimidate you and try to bring fear and intimidation against you, it's a sign that you are already reigning with Christ. You have already been seated in heavenly places with Christ, far above all power and principality and dominion and might, and every name that is named both in this age and that which is to come. You have already been seated in your place of authority, and you have already been giving the anointing to enforce the lordship of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the devil wouldn't waste his time trying to make you afraid. Fear is prophetic suffering. Fear is so powerful that it empowers you to suffer now things that don't even yet exist. You're speaking those things which are not as though they were. (laughs) One of my uncles said one time, he says, the world is going to hell. People are dying that have never died before. (laughs) And I thought, 
that don't make no sense. We find a way to paint a gloomy picture of things. <laughs> People are dying that have never died before. <laughs> God wants to give us boldness. All right, bow your heads. Mm. Father, I come against every power of intimidation and fear that would attack your people. And I just release your people into a place of boldness. Some of your people are faced with decisions that need to be made, and there's fear surrounding that decision, fear surrounding that transition. And there's hesitation. But Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, I just release boldness into the hearts and minds of your people to run and not be afraid. It's time to run, saints. It's not time to walk. It's not time to hesitate. It's not time even to be cautious. There's a season to be cautious, but this is not it. It's time to run. It's time to lay hold of the things that have been held out to you by the power of the Holy Spirit and run with them. Scripture says, if your soul draws back, I will take no pleasure in you. But we're not those who draw back and are destroyed. That's not who we are. Some of us have been tempted to draw back in our hearts. To draw back out of fear and intimidation. But this morning the Spirit of the Lord is coming to bring you boldness. And the Spirit of the Lord is coming to bring you peace. The Spirit of the Lord is coming to bring you joy in the midst of it. Some of you are experiencing great pressure. You're experiencing great struggle. You feel like the pressure just gets... Gets stronger and stronger and stronger. The fire gets hotter and hotter and hotter. But the Spirit of the Lord is coming to strengthen you in the midst of it. Pressure is not going to cease because the Lord is using the pressure and using the, the 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 trial to separate you, to separate soul and spirit in you, to purify you. And to strengthen you. To prepare you for greater glory. But what he's going to do is strengthen you in the midst of the struggle. And give you great boldness. Give you great faith. And give you great peace. Father I just speak your blessing. Right now. In the name of Jesus. I speak great blessing over your people today. Hallelujah. And for those who are afraid. Father I just. Pray for the removal of fear right now. We just relinquish it all to you. Take it away. Release great boldness and great faith. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.